Hello, Paul here. This week we had uh, Dutch News' very own Sinead Bostas as co-host on the podcast, but unfortunately we only found out after the recording that she had some troubles with her microphone, so her audio quality is a little bit off this episode. We apologize for that and hope you'll uh, nonetheless enjoy this episode. Cheers! It's Friday, April the 30th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Gordon Derrick, Dutch News Contributing Editor and buzzard-busting Hoonabed Hopper, and with me is Paul Peters, Master Student in Civil Engineering and Madagascar Refugee, and Shanae Bostas, Dutch News Contributing Editor and Master Cake Baker. Indeed. It's, uh, it's Queen's Day today, isn't it? It is Queen's Day, yes, uh, and unfortunately because of Corona, we're not going to have the spectacle of uh, lots of uh, tourists with outdated copies of Lonely Planet wandering around Amsterdam. Yeah, vergis toeristen, as we call yeah. them. Yeah. <laughs> One of the better Dutch words, in my opinion. This is, this is a phenomenon. Shin, you're in Amsterdam. Have you seen any uh, be- be- bewildered-looking tourists uh, wandering around in the street outside this morning? Do you know, even at the height of the worst of the coronavirus lockdowns, there is always at least one bewildered tourist wandering around <laughs> in the street looking for the red light district. It's yeah. But was he wearing an orange inflatable uh, windmill on his head or not? Uh, that I have not seen just yet. But there yeah, are still a- flags out and there is quite a lot of orange litter around the place still. Hmm. All right. Uh, Gordon, you are live from Drenthe, aren't you? Yeah, I'm live from Drenthe. This is this is really the outer reaches. I think this is probably the f- this is like the podcast on roadshow. Uh, I've sneaked away <laughs> to Drenthe for a weekend because it's uh, in our um, in the Hague. Uh, the schools are on holiday this week, so um, I've uh, t- taken my children away for a couple of days, and I've been uh, trying to dodge uh, these famously aggressive buzzards um, that uh, nest in the trees around here, which I've managed to do. I went out for a run yesterday morning and lived to tell a tale. So. It's do, been do real what, what, what do the buzzards do? Well, the buzzards just kind of swoop down on you when you're running. Um, sometimes so the, 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 uh, we had the yeah the, the reports in the um, on on, on Etifé Drenthe last week that people have been attacked by buzzards. It, it happens every year. There's always uh, one or two that uh, get a bit uh, territorial if people are walking or cycling or running nearby. I've, I've, I've personally been attacked by buzzards a couple of years ago, and uh, yeah, it wasn't a lot of fun. Maybe you should yeah. wear orange, it's deterrent. <laughs> yeah, but they advise you to wear a cap or even like a uh, cycling helmet if you're on a bike. But I, think even that, the, but I think even the prospect of being attacked by buzzards would not uh, persuade Dutch people to wear cycling helmets. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. True. Yeah, and luckily in Drenthe there's always a, a hunebed nearby where you can uh, shelter underneath. Exactly, right? you shelter so, under the yeah. hunebeds, yeah. yeah. So yeah. Th- there is always safety. Yeah, so I was delighted to. It's been a bit of a survivalist week for me then. Um, and speaking of survival, Apol, uh, are you uh, making plans to, uh, uh, to, to escape to Madagascar, is what I've been hearing. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> no, I'm not going to Madagascar, but according right. to a certain um, uh, MP uh, of a certain party, it is a nice idea to uh, send uh, a lot of people from the Netherlands to Madagascar. 
Um, we're talking, of course, about uh, Thierry Baudet, unfortunately, yeah. and he uh, he sent a tweet last uh, week where he proposed to send, I think, immigrants to uh, Madagascar from the Netherlands. And anyone who has ever studied the Holocaust knows that that was the initial plan the Nazis yeah. uh, uh, wanted to do with uh, with the European Jews, uh, sent them off somewhere far away. And initially, yeah. that idea was uh, Madagascar. So yeah, a lot of people. Um, uh, it was kind quest. of the first draft of the Holocaust, wasn't it? Uh, the yeah, s- it was one of the Madagascar first drafts, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, I'm sure it's just a freak coincidence that uh, Thierry Baudet um, made a unwitting reference to the Holocaust. Exactly, and, and uh, uh, earlier that day he also claimed that modern architecture was the worst thing that has ever happened uh, to Europe. Um, So already a lot of people pointed out that, you know, we had a genocide not so very long ago where six million people were, you know, gassed in a systematic and industrialist way. Um, But uh, yeah, and then he topped it off with this uh, with this tweet. So we didn't want to pay any attention to it. Uh, uh, Unfortunately, we failed. And yet we Uh, still had it. We ended up doing so. Yeah, indeed. Um, Moving on. Uh, Cake, you've been uh, baking, uh, Shen? I, I always bake. I always, always bake for bake. King's Day. And uh, this year, I thought that it would be best to um, have a cake away kind of arrangement. So oh. instead of seeing my friends, they could just take away some cake, along with a local oh, homeless person and some people passing by who tried to buy cake off me, clearly not having read that we we're not allowed to have sales this year. <laughs> yeah. People actually offered to buy your cakes. Yes, yeah. <laughs> they tried yeah. very hard. <laughs> This sounds very Dutch. People just determined to do King's Day, come what may, even when they've been told they can't. Exactly. Exactly. And you refused to sell them? I I didn't think it was really in the spirit of the thing, Paul. You have to work on your VOC mentality, uh, Shen. I I gave them a piece of cake. Ah, I I thought that was more in the spirit of King's Day. No, no, that's not in the spirit of King's Day. No, not at all. The spirit of King's Day is is, is to sell it cheaply and and, uh, take advantage of the one day that you don't have to charge VAT. Yeah. Clearly, I'm not well enough integrated yet, Gordon. No, more work to do. I think I need. I need. I think I need a course from Mark Rutter in how to be a bit more Dutch, don't I? I think you do. Yeah. You, 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 all you need is uh, Mark Rutter to turn up uh, at your house and uh, do some kind of, um, you know, uh, uh, TikTok video explaining how to <laughs> how to do King's Day pro- properly. Yes. A cake date. Like yeah, go on a cake date with Mark Rutter, and he would explain the whole thing to you. Yeah, that's a very nice and natural transition into the op of the week. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this time it comes from uh, The Hague because on Friday a mysterious video popped up on Twitter posted by writer and actor Likele Mus. He said in a thread on Twitter he was asked out several times by a woman called Emily and he had turned her down several times but all of a sudden she sent him a video. He wouldn't have shared the privately sent video if someone else couldn't be seen in it because nobody else then Prime Minister Mark Rutte jumped in the video and started to talk to the camera. Rutte said he was told that Moos thought he lied in the Functie Elders debate which he denied and he also advised Moos to reconsider going on a date with Emily because she was a very nice uh, lady. Um, Many people reacted surprised to the video and many thought it must have been a deep fake video which was supported by the bad quality, the out of sync audio and several online tools that could be used to determine if a video is real or not. Uh, Moos later deleted the video thinking it was indeed a deep fake but the Rijksvoorlichtingsdienst, the government's communication department, confirmed to NRC newspaper that the video was indeed real and it was made in a private context even though it was shot in uh, you know, his office in the 
Torenshire. Moose got a lot of criticism too. A lot of people thought it was rude to share a private video and that he should have just told Emily he didn't want to date her instead of posting this online. Um, I uh, was uh, I looked very hard for the video uh, because uh, 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 Moose had deleted his tweet um, at some point. I couldn't find it. I only found it in one location and that was on Geenstel. And I think we should uh, link to, uh, to, to that website if you want to see the video because it really does look like a deep fake. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's sort of a bad quality, shaky video uh, of Mark Rutter. But uh, how did Mark Rutter? I mean, does Emily work on Mark Rutter's stuff, or how does she get to be in the to- make this video in the tour engine in the first place? Yeah, because uh, uh, Mark Rutter mentioned her name, Emily, so a lot of people, yeah. um, that is me, uh, uh, immediately <laughs> checked out um, <laughs> LinkedIn uh, for the Ministry of General Affairs to see if there was uh, someone who worked there called Emily, and that was indeed the case. So yeah, everything uh, sort of. Uh, it's yeah it's it, it it could I thought it was it was a real video but you know a lot of people thought it wasn't because I can see Mark Rutte uh, you know t- uh, taping such a video for one of his staff members uh, I think um, uh, but yeah apparently it it, it, w- it w- was indeed a real video mad yeah, yeah very well, strange I, thought, uh, I think uh, my theory is that Emily asked Moose out uh, and she told him she works for Mark Rutte in his, uh, in his ministry. And he probably had mentioned a couple of times that he really hates Mark Rutte and he doesn't like the guy at all. <laughs> so she just out of, uh, you know, for fun, asked yeah. Mark Rutte to, to tape uh, a video uh, 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 trying to, you know, um, convince him to uh, go on a date with her. And uh, yeah, yeah, he's, and, uh, I think he's the guy who, who just does something like this. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. And to kind of play it along yeah I, I, yeah I can see him doing that definitely yeah but it was all was kind of all, all, all a bit weird but, but people are saying that he, should, that he should have just said that he he didn't want to go on a date but he, he'd, he'd said that a couple of times hadn't he so uh, he did maybe yeah so yeah. Uh, are they cut, even allowed uh, to date anymore is uh, is corona dating allowed now it is right you, you can have uh, one visitor can't you so yeah, yeah. in theory you can no have, swinging no. no. <laughs> well, you, 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 you have one, one visitor per day. So if you're going to go swinging, you've got to go and, um, yeah, you've got, you've got to visit different people on different days. That's yeah, so or you have told. to time it around midnight or something. Yeah, it's not really my area of expertise, but well, because <laughs> you had the curfew as well, so you couldn't do it around midnight either. Oh, that's, that's right. right. But, uh, yeah. but they have relaxed the rules since. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably because Ruta wants to date again. <laughs> <laughs> or Emily does. Or Emily, yeah, she convinced him, yeah. In this week's serious news, everyone not working in healthcare rejoiced as the corona curfew was lifted and pavement cafes started serving customers again. MPs heard the latest excuses for why parents who were wrongly accused of fraud still haven't been compensated by the tax office. And Belarus said on your bike to a Dutchman who tried to sneak across the border on two wheels. Exciting week. Three months after being introduced as a two-week measure, the curfew finally (laughs) expired on the morning after the king's birthday. But Willem Alexander wasn't the only one waking up with a hangover as a row broke out about whether the measure had been effective. Ernst Kaupers, head of the Dutch Intensive Care Association, and the man for whom the slogan If you don't like my opinions, I have others, could have been written, said the measure had no effect on the number of people admitted to hospital. Nevertheless, he told TV talk show Bo, it was necessary to slow the spread of the virus. Marion Koopmans, who's a virologist and advisor to the outbreak management team, said the curfew was introduced at a time when the so-called British variant, there it is again, was on the rise, <laughs> and the reproductive number R was at that point expected to rise to about 1.3, and in fact the R value has never been above 1.16 in the last three months, which suggests the curfew did have some impact. 
But anti-lockdown group Virus Fahrheit said it would use Kappas' comments in the latest stages of its interminable legal action against the coronavirus rules. So um, what, uh, what other measures have actually been eased this week, Gordon? So as well as uh, now being allowed out between 10pm and 4.30am, um, have either of you been outside at that time? Have you, have you taken uh, advantage of this great no. freedom? No. I, I'm too scared. I'm too scared to go out of my house now. <laughs> are, you, are you scared of the virus or are you scared of tourists um, uh, who, who've turned up on the wrong day? I'm scared of the dark. <laughs> so aside from the curfew being lifted, you can now go shopping without making an appointment. You can have two visitors in your house, as, uh, not just one. And to great fanfare, the pavement cafes have reopened. Yay! Yeah, but only from noon till 6pm you have to make an appointment you can only sit with members of your own family plus one outside guest and you cannot order bitter ballon on pain of death that's because they're, well, made, they're made from pigeons the you, bitter can, you can order the early bitter ball but not the, uh, the but not the late uh, ball bitter ball you can't have the proper ball bitter ball yeah so it's not really yeah. worth it yeah no that's right yeah did you uh, did you enjoy a, uh, a terrace uh, uh, the other day or not I've been on a terrace yeah very nice uh, on on Wednesday. Yeah, uh, well, a friend had actually made an appointment to go with her husband, but her husband decided to dump her and go play golf instead. So we we had to take over her appointment. Oh, how terrible! <laughs> what, what a noble sacrifice! It was. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And they, the 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 restaurant owners were so grateful to have guests again. Poor I thing. bet. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I can well, imagine. Was, yeah. was it busy with lots of people there? Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. some people some people were walking by and tutting, <laughs> looking right. at us like we were something <laughs> the pigeons just dropped from the trees. And some people were walking by with a big smile on their faces. So, well, the government's also published outline plans to bring in compulsory quarantining from May the fifteenth. Uh, but the measure has already been criticised as unenforceable by MPs. Uh, the idea is that officials will make random checks by phoning you up and checking whether you're at home. And they'll work out based on the the noises in the background whether you're not at home. So if they hear suspicious noises like a train going by or a shop till or somebody tucking into a plate of bitter ballon, then yeah. they'll know that you're not home. And they'll dispatch oh. a council official to the house. And if you're not home, you get a €339 Euro fine. Yeah, isn't, isn't it always uh, an argument against uh, one of these measures that it is unenforceable? I mean, they always say that, but, you know, there, there are many things that are unenforceable and we still uh, 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 we still think that you shouldn't uh, drive through a red light, for example, even though we don't put a police officer on every corner uh, checking if that uh, actually happens. So, yeah, yeah I, constantly. I, I mean, almost all laws. Yeah, yeah, I mean, most laws aren't enforced by the police constantly watching out for people. It's whether you, exactly. So, yeah, people yeah, follow them. Just a I think. Yeah. yeah. And also, I, I don't understand where the privacy rules come into all this. How can they just have your phone number to phone you? Well, you have to give it to them when you travel, don't you? You, you have to fill in a form. You just give you a fake number. in the wrong number. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Just it, give the too. number of the Kamer van Koophandel. That's, I think, that's the... Yeah, or give them Boris Johnson's phone number. Because apparently it emerged today that his his mobile number has been freely available for the last uh, five years or something. Oh, really? And you, you well, could just look him up idea. and send him a text or maybe send him a dodgy video from your, from your office if you might Ritter. <laughs> yeah. Uh, wasn't Bo- Boris Johnson uh, under attack for uh, 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 buying too expensive furniture or something, or was it? What, there was it was just redecorating his, his his flat, I think. His yeah. official he, flat. He attacked. Yeah. He attacked John Lewis, which is a British institution. Kind of like attacking. I don't know, Gordon. What's the Dutch equivalent? I, this is, well, it's kind of like attacking uh, the the Bayerkopf or um, Heyma, uh, attacking really the monarchy. Heyma, yeah, exactly. How many got Heyma? 
Oh, okay. It's, it's, it's just not the done thing. And there was a huge backlash. So MPs are divided on the issue of whether people should be exempt from quarantine if they've been vaccinated, uh, because some people think that's an indirect pressure to get the vaccine. Um, and some parties think the quarantine is true draconian. So Pepin von Hauerlingen of Forum for Demokratie said that stopping people travelling was the equivalent of banning Jews from public parks in the 1940s. And when I first ah. heard this, uh, and it was from the FAD, I thought that must, must be an endorsement of the plan. Complaining about <laughs> the Holocaust, but apparently not. He's complaining about it. Curious. <laughs> so, Gordon, tell us, what are the latest corona numbers uh, tell us? Uh, the latest coronavirus numbers are starting to look a little bit more encouraging. Uh, it looks as if the number of infections has levelled off and perhaps even started to drop in recent days. Uh, although the picture's been complicated by some technical faults and also the fact that fewer people um, took tests on King's Day. About 30% uh, fewer than on a normal Tuesday. But since last week, the average number of cases over seven days has come down from 8,300 to around 7,500. The only thing is we haven't really seen the effect in the hospitals yet. Uh, so on Thursday, 2,704 coronavirus patients were in hospital, which is the highest number since January the 7th. And there have been Jeez. more than 800 people in intensive care every day for the last two weeks. Um, and of course, there are fewer intensive care beds available now because... As people don't always uh, appreciate on Twitter, uh, an intensive care bed does nothing on its own. It needs to be staffed, and all the staff yeah. are off sick because they spent a year, they're just worn out from a year of constantly caring for coronavirus patients. So, and of course, we've also had another, yet another adjustment in the vaccination numbers. Wee oh, really? Yeah. Uh, so another week goes by and they, they do another recalculation. You might remember a couple of weeks ago, the RIVM managed to sort of uh, conjure up an extra 700,000 vaccine doses by sort of recalculating how many had been thrown away at the end of the day. Well, it now turns yeah. out that was a, they got a bit carried away, and that was a bit of, a, a bit of an overestimate. And so this week, they took another 200,000 vaccine doses off. So what a we, surprise. Yeah. So we've gone down now from 5.3 million vaccine doses to 5.1 million, and, uh, well, the government's target was to get up to 5.8 million at the end of April. Well, this is the last day of April, and they're not going to make it, basically. So a resounding um, success, shall we say. Yes, uh, yeah, so you, uh, two cheers as ever for Hugo de Jonge. And um, yeah, and, and another figure that's been causing a bit of controversy, Shen, is the, uh, the, the number of people who have actually died of coronavirus. Uh, and you've been looking into this. Yeah, this is, this is a bit strange. I've been investigating what, what I call the mystery of the zombie state. Because um, the fact is that by the end of last year, we know that on people's death certificates it said that more than 20,000 people had died from corona, 20,030 to be precise. But uh, the government continues to report to us all online, to the Tveda camera, to the world, that 17,124 corona patients have died, i.e. people who were diagnosed as having corona who have then died. But unless we've brought people back to life or we've got dead people walking around, something's not right. And actually, if you really look at the statistics, there have been more than 25,000 corona deaths in the Netherlands. But why does nobody know about it? Why is the government not adjusting its statistics in the way that it does for vaccine doses? Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of strange. I've seen various figures for the number of deaths and the way they calculate deaths and uh, whether it's um, you're taking off uh, death certificates, uh, as you say, which uh, would be one way to doing it. Or sometimes they just add up the daily figure because the, the REM gets reports every day from how many more people have died of corona and sometimes those, those 
reports come in a couple of weeks, sometimes even a couple of months uh, later. But um, And then the CBS, of course, do calculations based on excess numbers of deaths. So how many people more die than you would expect um, at the same time of year in a regular year? That's right. Um, there are, there are then, three There are three sources, basically. But the government yeah. itself says the best source is the death figures, what it says on people's death certificates. And some yeah. of them will say definitely it was a corona death and some of them will say suspected death. But the, the government itself admits that this is the most accurate figure. So why have they not updated uh, the figures from last year? Because then we'll have an actual number, an idea of how many people really have died in the Netherlands, which I don't know. Forgive me. I think this is an important number. No, I think it's totally important, and it is a mystery. And um, perhaps I think the daily figure tends to be, I think, day to day is is people who are known to have corona uh, before they died, right? So sometimes someone will will will, will die of corona so without having ever gone to hospital, especially if you're much older. And then those deaths are sometimes. they're not aware until much later that person was actually coronavirus death and how those get factored into the figures I don't know but obviously there is a gap there and I've seen people do various calculations and come up with a credible figure of around 27,000 people in the Netherlands have died which is you know a lot more than the official figure of 17,000 but I think you have this in every country every country's got different ways of calculating how many people have died and I know in the UK they count anyone who's died if they've had a corona diagnosis uh, tw- within the previous 28 days. Um, so the, the, their numbers are maybe uh, closer to the actual figure than ours. Um, but even so, you know, the UK's death rate is still higher. I think it's higher. important, isn't it, to, to understand whether you've taken the right measures and what effects they've had and, and how severe the, the coronavirus has been and whether people are justified in, in being sceptical about whether lockdown measures were too great. I think it's really important to know. Yeah, totally. It's, it's, and be it's open very about it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, well, it's, uh, I'm, I'm sure that uh, as time goes by, we'll get, uh, yeah, we will have more investigations. And, uh, and at some point, there's going to have to be a public inquiry, right? I mean, something on this scale. You, you want to learn the lessons and then perhaps the actual, uh, yeah, the, the, the actual accurate figure of uh, the number of people who died from coronavirus will come out. Another week, another disaster in The Hague. Last week, we told you about RTL News' revelation that ministerial council, uh, that the entire inclu- that the entire ministerial council, including Prime Minister and VVD leader Mark Rutte, Finance Minister and CDA leader Wopke Hoekstra, and Foreign Trade Minister and D66 leader Sigrid Kaag, had decided to withhold information about the child benefit scandal from Parliament, possibly breaking the constitution. On top of that, RTL quoted from the uh, secret cabinet meeting on November 17, 2019, writing that Wopke Hoekstra had said he tried to make Pieter Omzicht see sense after he was highly critical in a debate about Menno Snell, the minister responsible for the tax office back then. Omzicht played a crucial role in the uncovering of the child benefit scandal, which ultimately led to the fall of Mark Rutte's third cabinet, and this has been following him ever since. The Tweede Kamer reacted uh, furiously to RTL's revelations and demanded an explanation from the cabinet and that the minutes of cabinet meetings in which the child benefit scandal was discussed were made public. And in an unprecedented move, Prime Minister Margrethe decided on Friday to do just that, even though cabinet minutes usually remain secret for two decades. On Monday evening, uh, the 30 pages uh, which had been previously sent to the Parliamentary Investigative Commission were made public, uh, unredacted and without any anonymizations. So what was actually in these minutes then? 
Yeah, Rutte had always claimed nothing unusual or improper had been said or decided uh, in these meetings, but many people disagreed with him. Uh, when the scandal started to emerge in May 2019, the cabinet seemed to be willing to answer the critical questions by MPs, according to the minutes. Uh, for example, Health Minister Hugo de Jonge asked if uh, Menno Snell was going to answer all of Omzicht's questions, which he acknowledged. Uh, but after the full size of the scandal slowly and gradually emerged, and more and more MPs, including coalition MPs, began to ask uh, tough questions, ministers started to become irritated and annoyed. It wasn't Mark Rutte who expressed this, but acknowledged it when other ministers did. For example, in July 2019, Social Affairs Minister Wouter Koolmees complained that CDA MP Omtzigt and VVD MP Helma Lobbers were working together with the Socialist Party against uh, Menno Snell, the then responsible minister, saying that they were not very helpful. Uh, Koolmees uh, complained about uh, other critical coalition MPs and said ministers of their parties should speak to them about this. Uh, Rutte acknowledged this and said that uh, he had already spoken, for example, with uh, VVD MP Helma Lobbers, uh, who he had previously defended. Um, and uh, this was all followed by the notorious uh, sensibilisering comment by Hoekstra about Omtzigt. Uh, and also uh, there was an example, uh, infrastructure minister Cora van Nieuwenhuizen said it is in no way acceptable that coalition parties take a tougher standpoint than the opposition um, and yeah only Sigrid Kaag uh, uh, said that she doesn't see a problem with critical coalition MPs and uh, yeah all these comments sort of um we already knew this, I think, uh, everyone expected it, that uh, uh, ministers and the coalition uh, are always trying to, uh, uh, are always demanding loyalty from coalition MPs. But this is the first time that we see, really see this black and white and how uh, ministers talk about uh, coalition MPs and what they expect from them. Yeah, there's, there's, and these, um, this word sensibilisieren that uh, Huxa used about Omzicht, that, that, that stirred up quite a lot of uh, commentary, didn't it? What, what does it what does it mean precisely, Paul? I don't know because it's not the Dutch word, I think. But uh, it 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 it's sort of I I explain it as sort of to to um, make Omzicht see reason uh, uh, because he was so critical and that mm. uh, he, he had to sort of. Um, uh, he had to be explained that what he was doing was hurting the coalition and that he uh, he, he shouldn't um, 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 take such a, uh, a harsh standpoint against uh, against the ministers. Yeah, it's kind, kind of soft pressure, wasn't it? And that's what a lot of this uh, seemed to be about. It was uh, uh, ministers in the coalition uh, so to try, trying to find ways to, you know, to, to, to try and uh, uh, dampen the attacks from MPs and kind of seeing the MPs who were just basically doing their job of holding the government to account were somehow you know, um, in the wrong and uh, exceeding their brief. Um, well, was, yeah, there, was there a lot of sympathy expressed for the victims of this uh, unparalleled wrong by the cabinet, Paul? Uh, well, initially there was uh, some sympathy, but but later on, as the scandal was developing, the minutes showed that there, um, uh, the the cabinet was more and more concerned with the politics of the scandal. And uh, if, for example, paying out um, uh, 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 a compensation for the for the victims uh, will um, uh, 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 will create a precedent for other scandals as well. And um, so, yeah, initially there was some sympathy, I thought, but. Uh, as the as the scandal developed, um, uh, more and more concerns became um, more pressing uh, uh, for the for the cabinet. I think. And what else? What else? The minutes show. 
Yeah, there was also um, uh, one of the, uh, the revelations by RTL News was that uh, the cabinet uh, had decided to withhold information from parliament after Peter Omtzigt had expressly requested it. But according to the minutes, um, uh, the, the reason why the cabinet decided this was that they wanted to protect uh, public officials who, um, you know, have a right to uh, uh, make deliberations freely without fearing uh, of their names being published, uh, for example. And uh, uh, according to the minutes, that was the reason why they decided this. Uh, even though, for example, uh, Carola Schouten, the minister, agricultural minister, pointed out that this decision might harm the Tweede Kamer's constitutional right for information. So, um, yeah, this, is, um, uh, 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 this was also part of the debate that was held on Thursday, which information, what information should be shared with the Tweede Kamer and what not. Yeah, so there wasn't really a smoking gun here, but it did shine a light on the way that ministers interact with uh, with the Tweede Kammer and the, the kind of way the boundaries become blurred, really, between Parliament and um, and the executive, that we're supposed to have this very clear distinction between the two. But in practice, um, the yeah, coalition parties it's... expect the MPs from their parties to be loyal, and if they're not, they get outraged about it. And the MPs, uh, you know, maybe critical MPs, find it very difficult to get any information out of the uh, Cabinet because the Cabinet kind of has... Um, yeah, uh, has uh, has so much control of what information is released, and obviously yeah. because everything is so secret, and coalition negotiations are secret, and cabinet meetings are secret. If you don't disclose the information, it's quite hard for anyone to actually uh, establish that uh, you be, that, that, that you haven't been telling the full, giving them the full picture. Yeah, and in a way, it is understandable that uh, coalition ministers expect some sort of. Uh, loyalty or support from coalition MPs, but um, you know, in the end, MPs are there to hold the hold the government accountable, and um, um, if they ask questions, then they uh, they should be free to 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 do so. Yeah, and they should expect to get answers as well. They should expect to get full answers and not a kind of long discussion about what documents release and what documents you don't release and how you... There's, there's this whole dimension of it as well that uh, they wanted to reform the tax office, but they wanted to do it in a way, sort of do it while Parliament wasn't looking kind of thing. You know, yeah. they wanted to sort of present everything. And that is, yeah, that, that kind of seems to be a recurring motif of the Rutte, that he, they sort of make the decisions in Cabinet and then present these things to Parliament as a kind of fait accompli rather than um, allowing them and, 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 and try to minimize the opportunities for MPs to scrutinise the government's actions. Was there, was there was there any sense that this was such a big, such a big miscarriage of justice? I mean, we're not talking a hundred people, two hundred people. We're talking more than ten thousand people. Did did that not? Was that not clear that? Of course, you might expect party loyalty in general, but when there's such a huge miscarriage of justice, surely MPs are then acting in the best interests of their constituents of the country. Was there any sense of this in Cabinet that that might override party loyalty? Um, yeah, it's. I, it, I don't think that's very clear from the minutes. Um, uh, 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 initially, as I said in the beginning, they thought, oh, this is a problem, we need to solve it. But in the end, this problem became so large that uh, uh, the cabinet was more... It. <laughs> They had to, yeah, sort yeah. of, and they, and they, 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 they had to. Uh, there were other concerns involved. Uh, for example, this legal precedence, or or the politics of it all, or you know how this uh, how this will look in the media. And these are things that uh, 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 po politicians have to also take into account. But it is true, as you said, that sort of seemed to be more important than actually helping these people and to 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 solve the problems. 
Yeah, it became became kind of image management exercise, didn't it? I mean, that that was the dominant theme, and the 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 question of how to actually compensate these families was uh, yeah was very much secondary. Well, let alone compensate them, pay them back for the money that they had unjustly been forced to repay the tax office, leaving leaving compensation aside, giving them back the money that they rightfully should have had. Yeah, and of course we we learned yesterday that uh, although all the families were supposed to receive their thirty thousand euro compensation by the first of May tomorrow, which is uh, tomorrow, uh, about half of them won't uh, because uh, you know, the, the tax office just isn't capable of processing the um, the applications in time. Uh, that was one of the things that came out of uh, quite a long debate on Thursday, uh, Paul. So, so, so what happened during the debate? Yeah, it was a 14-hour-long debate about the cabinet's minutes and more broadly also about the administrative culture in The Hague and which information should be shared with Parliament. Margaret acknowledged that his standpoint that coalition MPs should be less critical than opposition MPs was inappropriate and that he wasn't proud that he had said this according to the published cabinet minutes. Uh, But he repeated that the cabinet did not withhold information from Parliament with bad intentions and never wanted to silence MPs. Uh, Coalition parties favor days, CDA and days assessors seem to be happy with Margot's performance in the debate and his acknowledgements uh, that the things he said in the cabinet meetings were inappropriate and ugly and also GroenLinks and PvdA wanted Margot to think about his role in the current administrative culture in The Hague uh, Rutte told GroenLinks leader Jesse Klaver that he is willing to scrap for example the coalition meetings on Monday in order to reduce the in-between zone between parliament and the cabinet uh, this, the coalition meetings on Monday are with um, uh, uh, the most senior ministers and also the party leaders in the Tweede Kamer and it's also uh, ministers and also MPs complained that this is uh, the actual um, uh, meeting where the decisions are made instead of in the Tweede Kamer or in the Council of Ministers on Friday, for example. So if uh, uh, Rutte decides to scrap these meetings, then that is um, uh, 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 a good move towards uh, bringing back dualism in 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 in, uh, in Dutch politics. And uh, also the PVV, FVD, Bijeen and Denk uh, parties, a, a very unlikely coalition, I have to an say. An astonishing coalition. Really. Yeah, Fair. they yeah. announced uh, before the debate started that they would jointly put a motion of no confidence against Mark Rutte to the vote. Uh, it was rejected at 2.30 a.m. with 40 votes in favor and 93 against. What, what does this all mean, pal, for the process of forming the next government? Yeah, who knows? Uh, um, uh, I completely forgot that we are still in the middle of a uh, formation. That's the thing. Say. Everyone's forgotten uh, we actually don't have a government at no. the moment. No, no one seems to bother by it. <laughs> Yeah, uh, the informateur Herman Schenk Willink uh, was supposed to come out this week with a report about his talks uh, that he had uh, with uh, political leaders in the past three weeks, but this is delayed because of the latest political developments. So, um, yeah, and they are definitely not helpful in bringing back peace, quietness and trust in The Hague after the very tumultuous weeks that we had after the election uh, one and a half months ago. So, yeah, who knows? Uh, I think the this scandal brought CDA, uh, DSSS, and VVD closer together um, because they're now all involved in, in their Rutte doctrine as uh, as everyone calls it yeah. um, and this debate also showed that uh, GroenLinks and uh, PvdA are 
um, uh, open or uh, uh, more sympathetic with the coalition part partners than uh, than they were uh, previously. So yeah, um, who yeah. knows? This is this might have been um, beneficial for for the uh, coalition formation. Yes. Yeah. So 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 after all the, the turbulence and all the outrage and all the gossip, uh, we're looking uh, now squarely at a at a fourth Rutter coalition. I mean, it looks as yeah. if uh, Rutter's position is actually, if anything, stronger than it was. Um, uh, yeah, immediately after the election. Yeah, and stronger than uh, than the last debate, definitely. Yeah, it's it's never been in doubt, really, has it? Though it's the only possible coalition, really. Um, yeah, that's the irony. It, it, Rutte's position had been in doubt, or at least uh, to me, it had been in doubt uh, with the uh, Funksy Elders um, uh, debate uh, on two occasions, actually, uh, in the debate and the day after. Uh, but it all. You know, it's Teflon Mark, and he always seems to come out uh, come out stronger out of these crises. And yeah. uh, this, ti this time it's no difference. Yeah, he, he, he's an absolute master at delegating blame, isn't he? So uh, yeah. in the end, although it's a good doctrine, it's got his fingerprints all over it, somehow he, ma the, 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 he engineers a situation he where... Yeah, he engineers a situation where the other parties are, are equally complicit and therefore they can't criticise him. Yeah. If you're already counting the minutes till the next minor bureaucratic scandal, perhaps you'd like to consider becoming one of our Patreon sponsors. We have almost a hundred lovely patrons now, and we're very grateful to each and every one of you supporting our efforts to bring you these weekly digests of the week's news. As a mark of our gratitude, we give all our new patrons a shout-out, free of charge, and the opportunity to ask us a question, um, anytime. This week, we welcome six new patrons, um, and among uh, their responses, there were some excellent questions. Um, so, so thank you very much to Micah Reimer, um, to Jana Honeman, uh, or Jana Honeman, uh, to Kate Murphy, um, and to Dan Young. Thank you very much indeed for your, for, for your support. Uh, to Mike Gerling, Mike um, got in touch uh, to say he moves over to Rotterdam a couple of years ago um, and works in an international organisation, so he relies on the podcast to understand what's going on behind the headlines and uh, the other nuances of living in a new country. He's got a question about um, uh, lifestyle supplements. He says back in the UK he used to rely on various supplements of the weekend papers to get his fix of cultural tidbits, lifestyle trends and personal finance advice. Um, is there anything like that in the Dutch uh, media or in the, the weekend papers, uh, he's asking? So anyone got any tips? I have to say that the Dutch papers aren't a patch on the British supplements. British supplements are amazing at the weekends. <laughs> yeah, I, I have no experience with the, with, the, with the English or the British ones, so yeah, I don't know. But um, I believe it was Robin who said that the Volkskrant and the Parole's uh, weekend supplements are the best in the, in the Netherlands. Yeah, I think the Volkskrant's probably got the best in terms of lifestyle stuff. I think the, the, the weekend supplements in, in the Dutch media, there are, there are no Sunday papers is the first thing. You don't have that tradition at all. Um, and the weekend paper supplements tend to be more like a kind of review of what's going on the previous weeks and very discursive, extremely long, tedious essay <laughs> yeah. style, yeah. Uh, you know, sort of ruminations. On they're much, the they're much more serious. They're much more self-important and self-involved. Yeah. But, but there is some decent lifestyle stuff, I think, in uh, Defaults Crump. They have, um, and I think NSA have a weekly design supplement if you're into design, which is quite good. Um, I, th I think you need to basically wait for the dentist to open up again properly and then you need to go and browse through the magazines and find <laughs> yeah. your one of choice there. That's the, the dentist is the best place to go for that. 
Right. Isn't yeah. if I if I I I, I don't have a, a, a subscription to this newspaper, but um, uh, uh, shouldn't the Telegraph has something that he is looking for? Oh, well, that's that's sort of Dutch celebrities. I mean, that's a world apart. I've yeah? been here for yeah. 11 years, and I, I still don't really understand it all. <laughs> is it only is it only celebrity gossip in uh, in the Telegraph supplement? I think it's quite. Uh, Okay, Quite well, I'll ignore, yeah, ignore my suggestion then. <laughs> But where else? No, yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, Shen says it's not really so much of a tradition in the Dutch uh, media uh, as no. such. Uh, not in, in the terms. same way. There's not, not that sort of Saturday magazine that's kind of your magazine that you keep for the week and dip into and, and read all sorts of nonsense about all kinds of fun things, gardening, this, that and the other, everything. don't think it's quite the same. I think you have to go buy a specific gardening magazine if you want to know about gardening or interior design or whatever. Go to the, so go to the dentist, Mr. Gerling. Um, and then we have, one, we have one more patron uh, actually this week, uh, Stefano Bacianella, uh, who was uh, asked about uh, a, uh, yeah, a very specific Dutch tradition, uh, which I think we're familiar with and is probably worth discussing. Uh, it says, recently a friend turned 50 and he and his wife, or his, sorry, recently a friend turned 50 and his wife rented two inflatable puppets Uh, represented uh, Abraham and Sarah, which are four meters tall. I understand this is a ritual, <laughs> uh, customary ritual here when people turn 50, but uh, to foreigners, it is extremely bizarre, and I can completely concur <laughs> with this. Um, can you shed some light on how this uh, this this came to be? So, uh, Paul, uh, do you know what, what are the origins of this uh, Abraham in the town uh, tradition? Well... Uh, originally, and I I'm speaking, I think, of centuries ago, uh, the idea was that when someone turned 50, he approached, um, uh, you know, uh, Abraham's age, who I think yeah. famously became one, 175 years old or something, I according say, to the he Bible. He got a bit past uh, 50, didn't he? Yeah. Indeed, but, but, you know, centuries ago, that was the closest thing you could get to, to Abraham. So that was when, um, if you reached this age, people would give you a bread in the shape of a uh, man, uh, which supposedly uh, 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 depicted Abraham. Yeah. Um, but it was in 1961 when um, uh, uh, Prince Bernard turned 50, And uh, instead of a bread, uh, some people uh, offered him this huge, uh, yeah, puppet in the in the in the garden of the of the palace, uh, which also represented uh, Abraham. And yeah. that was the that was the moment this tradition started, and other people adopted it as well. And um, uh, and now it is uh, it is customary in the Netherlands when someone uh, turns 50 to have this huge doll in his front yard and the funny thing is it's supposed to it's sort of the Dutch equivalent of a roast right because it's always meant to make fun of the person who yeah. is uh, who turned yeah, who, 50 who's getting old basically yeah. who's getting old I yeah. remember that my father turned 50 and um, the neighbors put a doll on on top of a um, uh, not an inflatable doll but they they, they, they put a stationary bike in, uh, in the front yard because my father loves to speed um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, cycle um, so they put a doll on it with a, with a long beard and a uh, and, a, and, and a, you know an, an old guy doll basically yeah, with yeah, uh, yeah. wearing a shirt a sponsored uh, uh, speed skating shirt of Sauna <laughs> Diana which is a brothel which uh, famously once um, <laughs> sponsored the shirt of, uh, of several um, uh, uh, speed skaters in the 80s All right. so it's, yeah it's that was the way great. it's kind of 
Yeah, the, 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 the equivalent these days is Easy Toys sponsoring Emin, isn't it? The exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah indeed. So, um, so yeah, it's uh, th- that's basically the tradition. But um, I think it's more fun to, to do something like this rather than rent uh, one of these huge inflatable dolls and put it in, uh, in someone's front yard. But that's my opinion. Yeah, some are quite creative, and uh, yeah, as you say, you have people that sort of hang signs on the on people's doors, and uh, yeah, but yeah, but I wonder how it specifically came. Uh, 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 they specifically alighted on this kind of a sort of Bible tradition of uh, Abraham and Sarah. Is uh, it's uh, yeah, kind of quite kind of quite bizarre, and there's something about this. Well, you're supposed to see Abraham in the garden or something. That's what uh, 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 something my Dutch family always explained to me. Yeah, uh, yeah the, the, that saying is, he has Abraham seen, and that yeah. basically means that he turned fifty or that he that he he, he turned old, yeah. and, or Sarah, which is the female equivalent. Yeah. Uh, I believe she was the wife, she of, was Abraham. The wife of Abraham. I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that, that's uh, indeed uh, probably related as well. What would we say but in I England? Th- We'd say he saw the spectre of death. Great. <laughs> yeah, or something. Then Abraham or... sounds much much more gezellig after it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a very Gazelle tradition, that's true, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Abraham probably is supposed to wear a giant inflatable orange crown as well or something. So <laughs> I can't remember because when Willem Alexander turned 50, which was only a few years ago, he'd, uh, he like, had like a um, a dinner for lots of um, of his contemporaries, didn't he? Yeah, and, that's uh, true. Yeah, 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 yeah. He invited but lots of people I... to the palace. I can't remember uh, seeing a doll in um, no. in the front yard of uh, of, of Palais House Temples. Well, isn't no. Maxima fifty? I thought she just turned fifty. She, she's turning fifty this year, isn't she? There's lots ah, of yeah. So, that's, so that's we something have I have a, seen in them. We'll see if she gets a Sarah then. If you'd like to join our select band of social distancing patrons, log on to www.patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com/slash/dutchnewsnl. So, on with the news. Now, um, in the course of history, artists have often been accused of flirting with the devil, but a statue in Flevoland took this far too literally for some local politicians. This week, a nine-metre-high oval copper statue by the late artist Rudy van der Wint did return to its position next to the ASS, uh, the A6, near Lelystad, but without its provocative name, the Tongue of Lucifer. So, uh, who was getting um, in a uh, in a twist about uh, Lucifer's tongue? Well, Lucifer is of course a name for the devil in Christian mythology, and so the idea of the devil sticking up his tongue out of the earth at us all was not popular with the local Orthodox Christian SGP. They thought it was blasphemous. So, uh, when the statue was taken down for restoration, there was a debate, and the statue ended up being renamed just De Tongue or the Tongue. Even though I think it's uh, pretty uh, pretty appropriate to have, I mean, if if the devil would reside anywhere, it would definitely be in Flavorland. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, <laughs> right beneath Urk. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but the rest of the name burns away, right? But yeah. that wasn't the only uh, incendiary art problem this week, was it? No, that's right. In Utrecht, a, a diligent cleaning contractor thought that uh, a blanket of greenery <laughs> over a set of steps outside the Central Museum was a horrendous overgrowth of weeds so this unnamed contractor burned it all away it's actually a shame that the greenery on the ecological stairs cost 243,000 euros <laughs> just, i mean nothing can make me more populist than 
uh, RT green staircases, which should serve as a meeting place between plants, animals, and humans, uh, with a price tag of two hundred fifty thousand euros. I mean, it's just ridiculous. When your art is, uh, y- you cannot distinguish your art from from Unkraut, then it isn't art. That's my <laughs> that's my opinion. This is like the equivalent of the the cleaner who tidied up Tracy Emin's bed, wasn't it? In, uh, yes, the, very the, good. The, yes, the, indeed. In the, in, the, in the Tate Modern, it's like. Uh, or a um, or a uh, cleaner cleaner who uh, who cleaned the uh, pinnacas floor of, uh, oh, yeah. of one of these artists as well. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, kind all, of like my the... approach to gardening, though. I, I tend to kill things rather than make them flourish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But do you kill them with fire? <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I certainly kill them with incompetence. You could use weed killer in uh, in art installation. That'd be the next step. Yeah. Or, yeah. or maybe the, the, we could have combined these two uh, yeah, events by the, 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 by, by sending the Kleesner over to, to to burn away the uh, Lucifer's tongue. Why didn't the MKP <laughs> think of that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Although I, I don't know. I'd have thought that Lucifer's tongue on fire would have been even more offensive to the SKP than it was just. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, or, or yeah, or, or if they just used it to to to, to burn down a coronavirus test centre because uh, they're, they're, not, they're, they're quite fond of burning things down in uh, in Europe. Yeah, right? mm. yeah. It was Koningsdag last Tuesday, and it was the second time in a row that the Dutch national holiday was completely different than usual because of the pandemic. All festivals were cancelled. You couldn't buy your neighbour's trash and junk, or your ears wouldn't bleed from music played on a badly tuned violin on the free market. But you, I, I heard you could uh, you could you could buy some cake somewhere in Amsterdam. Yes, I heard there was there was surreptitious uh, cake selling going on as well. Not for sale. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, un- unsolicited cake buying. <laughs> but that didn't stop people from dressing up in orange and going to city centers and celebrate King's Day. Because shortly after noon, Amsterdam urged people not to come to the capital because the city was too full. The Volo Park was closed to new arrivals because too many people had come to the park to enjoy the sunshine. After which other parks were also shut. Uh, Utrecht and Breda followed Amsterdam and called on people to celebrate King's Day at home. Later in the afternoon, the police in Amsterdam. Breda and other cities as well were called in to end numerous impromptu King's Day parties and at some locations such as the Vondelpark even the riot police was needed to evacuate the area. Several hundreds of people were fined for breaking the corona rules. Ah oh, forget all that. The important thing, how did the king spend his birthday this year? He, uh, King Willem-Alexander and his family visited the high-tech campus of the Technical University of Eindhoven in, uh, well, Eindhoven, mm. where they were uh, shown several innovations and inventions. In the evening, a concert was held from the Garden of North and the Palace in The Hague. The king said he hoped this was a king's day never to repeat it, referring to the coronavirus restrictions that prevented the traditional festivities. Um, uh, but also to the outcomes of the traditional Oranje survey carried out by NOS. This year, the popularity of the Dutch royal family has gone down significantly compared to previous years, and support for the monarchy is at an all-time low. Only 57% of people questioned say they have trust in the king, compared to 76% in April last year. This is due to a number of coronavirus-related blunders, such as going on holiday to Greece while everyone was urged to stay at home, and also uh, being photographed not wearing 
masks at places where he should have. Mm. Uh, three quarters of the respondents also said the allowance of 1.6 million euros Princess Amalia will receive after she turns 18 in December is too high, uh, and support for the monarchy as an institution has also gone down from 75% to only 58%. And surprisingly, the number of people who want a more active role for the king in a cabinet formation has gone up. Uh, I wonder why. Uh, from 33% last year to 41% now. Well, he couldn't do it. He couldn't do a worse job than the politicians, could he? Yeah, in, indeed. That's a paradox, isn't it? I mean, people are losing trust of the monarchy, but they also don't want to um, you know, have, have no confidence at all in the political leaders. So you know, if you abolish the king, who becomes president? I see a situation where the king uh, abdicates and is immediately re-elected uh, as president <laughs> in the first of the, the, rest of his of, life. the new Dutch yeah. Republic, yeah, president for life. That could be the solution, I think. The man can yeah, rule yeah, the country yeah. from his holiday home in Greece. I mean, that was the so- yeah. I mean, that was the solution of the Dutch uh, Republic, right? In the in the 17th century, yeah. We, it, it, in, uh, on paper, it was a republic, but they kept electing the uh, these these members of this uh, one particular family. So yeah, it was <laughs> in effect, it was a hereditary um, uh, monarchy. Yeah, it was but, a her- yeah, hereditary we, republic, we, which they then restored as yeah. a monarchy. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. As a dual monarchy with Belgium, which then fell to pieces and became... um... Yeah, well, Belgium. (laughs) Whatever Belgium is now. (laughs) Yeah. In sports news, Ajax are one point away from clinching their 35th Eredivisie title after they beat Azad Alkmaar 2-0 in Amsterdam at the weekend. The defending champions uh, from two years ago have a big goal difference advantage on second-placed PSV Eindhoven, but they can put the issue beyond doubt if they'd avoid defeat at home this weekend to Emmen. But the Deventer Club are on a good run of form at the moment. Uh, they've uh, risen from the dead, uh, rather like some of the coronavirus uh, uh, patient <laughs> people, patients we were talking about earlier. It's probably the sex toy story. They, uh, <laughs> Sponsored by the sex toy, yeah. 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 Uh, they, they've, won, yeah uh, they've won five of their last eight games to move off the bottom of the table into 16th place above VVV Fenlo and Ado Den Haag. A cash-trapped Ado uh, are in uh, real trouble. They're struggling for wins on the field, but they did have a victory this week in court against their owners, United Vansen, who are owned by Chinese billionaire Wang Hui. They were ordered to pay 2 million euros in outstanding contributions from their contract, but the cash probably won't come in time to save the club from relegation to the Gokun Kampion Divisi, which is a much less appealing sponsor, uh, I would agree. I think we can all agree on Easy Toys. <laughs> Definitely. Well, it depends whose kitchen we're talking about, Gordon. This is true. Yeah. <laughs> but um, in uh, in other sports news, there's there's been a, a really damning report this week in the world of gymnastics. This is a, a long-awaited report commissioned by the KNGU, the Dutch Gymnastics Federation, and this found that abuse was rife at the top level of the sport in particular. The KNGU carried out a survey of current and former athletes. They found that two-thirds of the athletes were subjected to what they call transgressive behaviour. This covers a wide range of things, including bullying, intimidation, controlling, humiliating athletes in front of their training group and sexual assault. There were two allegations of rape as well. This uh, so-called tough culture around professional sport and the system were blamed for facilitating abuse and making victims reluctant to come forward. International gymnasts and professional competitors were more likely than recreational gymnasts to experience abuse. But the KNGU is concerned that these figures are only the tip of the iceberg. That's because only 21% of adult gymnasts and 17% of juniors even responded to the survey. 
The Federation said apologies should be made and compensation should be paid to the athletes who were affected. It also recommended setting up support networks for former victims and offering restorative mediation to those who want it. The clubs should take a more proactive line on transgressive behaviour, not just investigate incidents when they're reported, and they should work with athletes, parents and schools to address the problem. The age when gymnasts start their careers is a particular concern and also the issue of weight loss. Trainers should be questioned about why a child is being told to consult a dietitian and there should be better supervision. And there should be better supervision. For example, trainers shouldn't be alone in the gym with their athletes for a long period of time. Yeah, very sobering, and it's uh, this has been uh, yeah, it's it's become apparent over the last couple of years, isn't it? There's been a real problem, a real culture of bullying, intimidation, and uh, like you said, uh, sort of toughness in gymnastics, which is a sport that you know lots of uh, um, people send their children to, uh, thinking it's a it's a constructive way to teach them about sport and competition and discipline, and it turns out that uh, yeah, there's. Uh, um, uh, a lot, lot of a lot of these kids are exposed to uh, some quite nasty individuals. Um, a slightly brighter story. Uh, one 48-year-old Dutchman took an unconventional approach to getting away from it all this week when he decided to break the urgent advice not to travel outside our country. He somehow managed to cycle all of the way to Belarus, whereupon he was caught by the border police, arrested and given a five-year-old five-year ban. Five-year ban from cycling or uh, entering <laughs> Belarus? Uh, both together, I believe. Mm-hmm. But what exactly was he doing? Well, he, he apparently told police after they found him hiding in the woods that he wanted to start a new life in Belarus or Russia, but he wasn't able to enter the country legally. So cycling from neighboring Lithuania seemed like the best plan at the time, he said. Hmm. Now, what was the appeal to him particularly about Belarus? I mean, surely if he was uh, trying to get vaccinated against Corona, he should have uh, gone west towards the UK. True, although I I would have thought it'd be more appealing to cycle south to get a bit of warmer weather. A very bizarre uh, story. Was he wearing a cycle helmet when he was arrested as well? I did see something at the back of the bike that looked a bit like a cycling (laughs) helmet, which made me think that he couldn't possibly even be Dutch. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Maybe that's why he fled the country. He wants to go somewhere he could wear Maybe his helmet he on without, without being ridiculed and dis- disturbed. <laughs> Maybe he really hated the colour orange and he wanted to get away of... Uh, yeah, maybe he wants to escape from King's Day. He yeah. just had enough. Or politics. I wouldn't blame him. Yeah. Or politics, yeah. He was, looking for a country, he was looking for a country with a functioning government. <laughs> <laughs> and he chose Belarus. Yeah. <laughs> Belarus. The president of Belarus not recently um, uh, changed the rules of succession so that basically now his son will succeed him if anything happens to him. You see a, a, another great yeah. solution. Yeah. It's, just, uh, it's another VOC mentality uh, uh, example, I think. Just... Uh, Call yourself a republic, but yeah, have but then a, have a hereditary uh, yeah hereditary ruler. Indeed, yeah. Yeah. and I also if I if I read the comments on on the internet, uh, Belarus has the same uses the same right police as the Netherlands. So yeah, it basically <laughs> is the same country. Yeah, it's just, just yeah, yeah. Yes, just, but with a better vaccine program. Yeah, yes, it's got a better better vaccine program, and it doesn't have and uh, less orange. Yeah, the, the, uh, and it doesn't have a, a faith day days and just a coalition. <laughs> to be fair, Paul, it's not hard to find a country with a better vaccination program. Yeah, no, that's I'm, true. I'm, yeah, I'm surprised here, but hasn't suggested that, uh, that everyone should just uh, we should just send all. all uh, yeah, everyone all should just flee, flee to Belarus instead of Madagascar. <laughs> we should all go to Madagascar and get vaccinated. <laughs> 
That's all we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We'll include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. And if you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. And you can also now back us on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl and earn yourself a free shout-out on the next podcast. My thanks to Paul Peters and to Shania Bostas. I'm Gordon Darach, and we'll be back next week. Music